morning. So in a different book, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet tells of a sign that God is going to give King Ahaz of Judah. And this sign is to prove to King Ahaz that God will destroy Judah's enemies, <clears throat> even though they're practically standing at the gate and about to attack. This is what Isaiah 7:14 says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. But there is an Easter egg in this verse that perhaps those who first heard it or read it didn't see. If you're unfamiliar with what an Easter egg is, uh, it's often used to describe uh, what a film director might do, hiding some little detail in a film, either just for the fun of it or because it tips you off to something else that might happen in a sequel. So, for instance, if you go back and watch the first Iron Man movie, if you look hard enough, you will see Captain America's shield buried in there somewhere. It's an Easter egg. It tells you something. That one was just for fun for the most part. But there's an Easter egg here in this prophetic word. An Easter egg that was later picked up by Matthew in the New Testament as a word not only about a child that was to be born in Isaiah's day, but as a word about the virgin birth of Jesus to Mary. Isaiah's prophecy meant something different in Isaiah's day, something on a much smaller scale. But now that Jesus has come into the world, Matthew and others will say, we see something else in Isaiah's words, something much broader in scope, something much more cosmic and epic and world-changing that God had in mind. This is the biggest Easter egg of all. In Matthew's Gospel, Joseph discovers that his fiancée Mary is pregnant, and Joseph decides to break off the relationship to divorce her quietly, though her punishment, according to Jewish law, could have been much more severe. Joseph is a godly man, a compassionate man, and so he decides to do this quietly. But during the night, Joseph has a dream, and an angel comes to Joseph and tells him not to divorce Mary, that Mary and the child she is carrying are part of this magnificent plan that God has put in motion. She will have a son, and he will save his people from their sins. Chapter 1 of Matthew, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah's original prophecy, the promise meant that God was with his people and would protect them from their enemies. When it is applied to the birth of Jesus, it means God is with us in the flesh. God has become one of us. He's taken on flesh and blood and bone, and he's become one of us. We refer to this as the incarnation, the enfleshment of God among us. So as we enter into this season of Advent, a season of adventures, if ever there was one, we will look at several Old Testament passages from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the prophets. And many of them deal with this theme of exile. They arise from a time of exile. Exile refers to a time when God's people were defeated, captured, and taken away to live in a foreign land. In this case, Babylon. This particular exile happened in, in uh, two stages. In 598 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem and carried away many of the elite members of Jewish society into Babylon. That was the first deportation. The second deportation happens in, uh, happened in 586 B.C. 
The letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles here in Jeremiah 29 was written between these two deportations. So as you can imagine, this is a difficult time for the people of God. They long to be rescued. They long to be ransomed from their lonely exile, as the hymn we will sing a bit later says it. Exile is a haunting metaphor for life without hope and without God. All we really want to do is go home, though we may not always know it or say it that way. In this morning's passage from Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is dealing in part with the lies of false prophets. Jeremiah is telling God's people that this exile they are in now is going to last 70 years, but one of the false prophets, Hananiah, is saying, oh no, it's only going to, God's told me it's only going to last two years. After some rather testy back and forth between the two prophets, Jeremiah 28, the passage before this morning's, finishes off with this. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month, of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Hananiah had chosen to rebel against God's true word, and then in chapter 29, Jeremiah sends a letter to those exiles. He's writing it in Jerusalem. He sends a letter to those exiles that are still that are living in Babylon. He writes this letter to set the record straight. Verses 4 through 14 give us the text of the letter that Jeremiah sent. Let's just read the first few verses. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. What the people likely wanted to hear was that God would soon bring about an end to their exile, to their captivity. But what they got instead was a call to make themselves at home. Not just to buckle up and survive, but to flourish there. Oh, and as if to add insult to injury, they are to seek the peace and the prosperity of Babylon, the home of their captors. No doubt many of them wanted to live in either rebellion or resignation, two of the three basic options that any of us had whenever things happen to us that are not our way, things that cause us difficulty or pain. Rebellion, resignation, and consent. We looked at these three options earlier in our last sermon series on Deeper Water. We can rebel against what is happening, we can resign to what is happening and to the point that uh, we give in to despair, or we can choose the third option, which is consent. Consent. That is to say, that is not to say that what is happening is good or right. That is certainly not to say that God causes all the things that happen to us. It is to say that we can trust God in the midst of all of it and that good can sometimes come from very difficult and painful things. Why? Because we know Emmanuel, God with us. Because we know God with us. One of the things I love about Scripture is that not only does it teach us about historical events that happen, not only does it teach us how to live wisely in the world, but it also gives us, in this history, 
historical events and images that we can take today and apply to our lives as in a metaphorical way. They can give us hope. They can give us a picture of how we live in the world. And exile. Exile is one of those powerful historical events that can serve as a beautiful metaphor for us, as, do, as can the words of Jeremiah 29 and the promise that one day God will bring us home. Once again, we're in the season of Advent, a word which means arrival or coming. And there are three ways in which this season of Advent, at least three ways, can have meaning for us today. First, Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, is a remembering, a rehearsing of the events of exile, the longing for God's people to be delivered. Second, it's a call for all of us to consider all the ways that we today are in exile, personally, as families, as the Church of Jesus Christ, as our community, as a nation, even globally. In what ways might we feel distant from God, cut off from God, and why? Finally, during the season of Advent, we look forward to the return of Christ, just as people thousands of years ago looked forward and awaited the birth of the Messiah, the first coming of Christ. And this means we prepare ourselves for Christ's coming. We prepare ourselves for Christ's coming. Christ's coming again, and Christ's coming into our lives and relationships every day until then. So in that sense, the Advent season is a season not of partying to get ready for Christmas. Advent season, as the church understands it, is a season of reflection and repentance. It's sort of like the season of Lent, in the way the season of Lent works for Easter, we go through this season of reflection and repentance to prepare to celebrate the resurrection. Advent is kind of like Lent, but applied to Christmas. How will you let your heart prepare him room this year? How will you practice disciplines that will soften your heart for the coming of Christ into the world and into your lives and relationships anew? day after day. So before we go any further in the text, let us consider the ways each of us personally might be experiencing a form of exile. Let us consider the ways we might rather rebel against God or resign ourselves to despair instead of consenting to the work of God even in our difficulties, even in our exiles, whatever they may be. The past 18 months or so have been for us a kind of exile. We have been exiled from loved ones, from workplaces, from schools at times. We've been exiled from a normal way of life, and that continues to have an impact on us even today. We have also experienced exile in the political divide, the controversy around Black Lives Matter, or how different churches did or did not mandate social distancing or the wearing of masks. Our exiles have split churches. Our exiles have split families. In a recent article in Outreach Magazine, colonist, pastor, consultant, church planner, he does a lot of things, Ed Stetzer, wrote that while he does predict that attendance numbers in churches in 2022 will return to pre-pandemic levels, he adds a very important caveat, which he calls the great sort. This is what he says. Huge numbers of people have moved from church to church for reasons only tangentially related to the pandemic. For example, some people left their church because the church wore masks. Others left their churches because the church did not wear masks. They sorted themselves into churches that followed their view of masking. 
That's a great way to choose a church, isn't it? Some people left churches because they heard the name George Floyd. Others because they did not hear the name. Some people left churches because the Sunday after the U.S. presidential election, the pastor prayed for former Vice President Joe Biden. Others left churches because the pastor did not pray for President Biden. This great sort is a form of exile too. But there are many, many more types of exile. Maybe you are estranged from a loved one. Maybe someone refuses to forgive you for something you've done, or you have refused to forgive someone. Maybe you're without a job or without a home or going through a divorce. Maybe you or someone you know is in love is sick. Or maybe any of things and many others have caused you to doubt and lose your faith. All of these and many more kinds of things can be for us a type of exile in which we long for home, for something better. Is there an exile with which you can identify? A situation in your life or world in which you long for wholeness, for the final and full coming of the kingdom of God, for the defeat of all that is evil and unjust. Take a few seconds and name that silently. Just a few seconds. God's word to the people in exile, to us, is that there is a way to flourish in the midst of suffering and exile. There is a way to do a bit more than simply survive, although, given the alternative, survival is a worthy goal. This way of flourishing involves choosing to settle down, choosing to engage in life as usual as much as possible. It involves choosing to pray for our enemies and those who have caused us pain. It involves seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city, the community, the nation in which we live, rather than cursing it. It involves giving consent to God while we are in exile rather than choosing to live in resignation and despair or in constant strife and rebellion against the culture. This is not a promise that everything will go perfectly in exile. It's a promise that Emmanuel, God with us, is with us. And he will never leave us or forsake us. Jeremiah continues in verses 8 and 9. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Not only is Jeremiah railing against the false prophet Hananiah, who had told the people that the exile would only, be, uh, only last two years, he's also railing against other false prophets. So Jeremiah is in Jerusalem and he's written a letter to the exiles, the residents who are in Babylon, because there are prophets there who are telling them a different word and that word is they are to rebel against their captors and try to do them harm. They are to fight. And to this Jeremiah says, no, that is not what you are to do. You are to do the opposite. You are to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city Babylon. You are to pray for it to prosper. Do this, God says, and it will go well for you as well as the Babylonians. In our age of division and outrage, 
in this era of cancel culture and culture wars, perhaps we can learn something from God's instructions to his people long ago. Maybe we can adopt a new way of life that seeks the welfare, the peace, the shalom of the city or the nation in which we live rather than its destruction. Perhaps we can find the strength to live this way, to turn the other cheek whenever we are attacked or maligned, as Jesus will teach us. To keep the peace, to make peace with as many possible, as much as is possible with us, as the Apostle Paul will later say to us. Because we know that God is with us. Emmanuel. But there's even more hope to be found in this prophetic word. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. One day, God will bring his people home to Jerusalem. One day, as far as you and I are concerned, God will finish the good work he has begun in us. One day, God will dwell with us and we will dwell with God like never before. One day, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more, no more mourning or death or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and the one seated on the throne, Jesus, will say to us, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the promise. And then Jeremiah launches into a section that many of us have heard. Some of you may have memorized parts of it. You may have it framed on your wall or cross-stitched on a pillow on your sofa. Verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I I banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. I think God is doing at least two things here in this passage. First, Right at the end, he's telling the people in exile and us that he will one day literally end all suffering. He will one day bring them and us home. And this is our motivation to find a way to flourish and to thrive in the meantime, to take the cosmic lemons that we've been handed and to make lemonade. Again, this is not some Pollyannish kind of way of, of, of living. We are not to pretend that things are hunky-dory when they're not. We are to tap into Emmanuel, the God who is with us no matter what. We are to drill down and drill inward until we discover the presence and the peace of God that will enable us to keep on living, even thriving, and doing so with joy amid whatever sorrow the world might throw at us. The second thing God is doing is showing us a way that the hope that is ours in the future can reach back and wash over us even now. On the one hand, I do think that God is saying that people need to buckle down and live, do do all the things they would normally do as they seek to live their lives, the things they would do in Jerusalem. On the other hand, God is also telling them it's going to be a while. So, Call on him, pray to him, and know that when you do, God will be found by you. This is a future reality. This is a hope that can can begin already to wash back over us even now. In in Daniel chapter 9, in my my year-long Bible reading plan, it's going to take about 15 months, um, I am in Daniel this week. I can't stop reading it. 
It's such a great story. Daniel 9, the prophet, is in exile. He's in Babylon. He's serving the king there. He outlasts like three kings there. He is doing exactly what Jeremiah says to do in this letter. He has found a way to flourish and to work for the welfare of the city, all the while maintaining his identity and his integrity as a lover of God. And in that chapter, Daniel says that he has been reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, and he sees that Israel's time in exile will only last 70 years, and he's thinking, it's almost over. We must be getting close to the end. But what does he do when he finds this out? He doesn't invite all his friends and have an end-of-exile party. He follows what we read in the closing verses of Jeremiah's letter in chapter 29. He seeks God in prayer. He confesses the sins of the whole nation and he pleads with God to forgive and to restore his people as he had promised. In this season of exile, whatever the nature of your particular exile, we too are invited not just to celebrate just yet, but to pray and to prepare our hearts for the gift we have been given in Christ Jesus, our Emmanuel. We are invited to live every day Not as if we are in a culture war, but as if we believe that the future and hope that we are promised is real and can mean something, can have an impact even now, even in terms of how we treat our enemies or people who disagree with us, which these days seems to be the same thing. The season of Advent speaks to us of past realities as well as future realities. It also speaks to us of the time in between those two realities, the time in which we live. We live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We live between Adam and Eve in the garden and the curse and the fall and the remaking, the renewal of the heavens and the earth. And all the while, God calls us to live, to seek the peace and prosperity and the welfare of the world in which we live and to pray for it. This is one of the ways we can practice our ECC touchstone of presence. We are sent into the world to be present to God and to others and to bear witness in word and in deed of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are sent into the world to be agents of change and redemption, to tap into the future and the hope that we have because of Christ and to allow that future hope to wash back over us, to transform us and in and through us to transform the world. As we have done in the past, we invite you to sign up during this season of Advent for brief texting prompts. They will come to you by text on your phone or um, in an email if you prefer. You can sign up for the text messages by texting the word at advent-ecc, at advent-ecc to the number 81010. Or if you prefer to have these emailed to you, simply send us or me an email at ecc at ecclife.net and we will get that set up for you as well. Friends, let us not waste our suffering or our time in exile. God is present with us. Let us be present to God and to others. God is with us. Let us be with God. 
Let us choose to practice the Emmanuel life with the Emmanuel God who will one day rescue us from all our exiles. Let us live as those who know the plans God has for us, His plans for good and not harm. Let us live as those who know the future and the hope that we are promised. And let us live as if it will make a difference in our lives and in our world. Would you pray with me as we close? God in heaven, we give you thanks this day and praise. We give you thanks for the season of Advent into which we enter this morning. And I pray, God, that as we reflect on where we are, our own personal, private exiles, on the exiles that have come upon us as a nation or as a church, God, would you help us to take up our part in this, to prepare our hearts, to make room for you, to reflect, to repent, and to look forward to that future and that hope that you have for us. And I pray, O oh God, that in and through us, first of all, that we would be transformed. And second of all, in and through us, that those around us would be transformed. Lord, help us to live into that future hope and reality even now. Help us, Lord God, to walk out of this room today, out into the world today, wherever we are, knowing that we are sent forth as ambassadors for your kingdom, knowing that we have a future and a hope, and that future and that hope are certain, and allowing that to transform us and make a difference in our lives, in our relationships, and beyond. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Emmanuel. Amen.